What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Napa know-how. Chase Elliott here letting you know that when you spend $25 a Napa this month, you get a free Chase Elliott racing hat. Need a set of brakes? How about a new battery? Both are hat-worthy. Replacing an air filter, then adding on wiper blades and headlamps just to break $25? That works, too. Go get your free Chase Elliott hat today. Quality parts, helpful people, free hats. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores, while supplies last. Offer ends 331.19. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. Let it bump go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you, sadly, this time without co-host Andy Bailey, who claims that he has a lot of law school midterms going on at the moment, but I'll leave that to you to decide whether he's lying or not. I am, however, as we keep this season preview train barren along, very excited to be joined by Bleacher Report National NBA featured columnist Grant Hughes, who has been kind enough to devote some of his time to us so that we may discuss the reigning champion, Golden State Warriors. How are you doing today, Grant? I'm doing great, Dan. Thank you for having me. And what better way uh, to spend our preseason as it dwindles uh, than talking about the best team in the history of the universe? It's And you know what's great is that there are probably still some people who... Hey guys, Clay Thompson here. By now you probably know that I like to read the newspaper. I just like that old school feel. But when I'm traveling or too busy to grab a paper, I like to go digital. It doesn't matter how you read the news, it just matters that you read it. That's how I stay informed. Read the paper or go digital. It's up to you. Be like Clay. Subscribe today and get local coverage of everything that matters. Read the paper. Subscribe to digital or print by going to clayoffer.com. It's news delivered your way. Brought to you by the Mercury News, East Bay Times, and Marin Independent Journal will talk themselves into being uncomfortable at hearing that the resistance to like <laughs> some just some of the old school resistance to the warriors now is is like laughably funny where you know during their 73 win season it was we'll listen to it because they haven't like been here yet but now everything just seems so futile and when you try and argue the contrary like it's not a situation where hey we, let's listen to this guy or let's listen to her it's no you're, you're just wrong like it, it just don't even bother arguing it yeah, like that's a weird thing that that happens like on a broader scale. I feel like uh, and you know this anytime you make a not hyperbolic, but a, like a superlative. If you use a superlative about a player who's playing right now, like saying this guy is potentially the best at X or the best uh, whatever, um, you get pushed back no matter what. And it's always like, I don't think you saw Gail Goodrich play or whatever. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, all right. I haven't seen a lot of things, but like I can tell you that. You know, the game right now is better than it's ever been. The talent level's higher, blah, blah, blah. So, like, whoever's the best right now, to me, it's, like, overly simplistic but um, and doesn't always apply, but is, like, the best because this is the highest level it's ever been. And so with the Warriors, yeah, like, you get pushed back and people don't want to hear it. But, like, look, um, you know, they almost set the record for offensive rating last year. Like, they won 73 games a couple years ago. They're, it's just, like, 
yeah, deal with it, people. Like this team is historically good. We may we may not see a team this good for a really long time. Or yeah, I'm, I I guess I'm hesitant to say ever because I'm sure people said that about the Bulls for the longest time. But and, and your point to the game being better than ever, like that's just a fact. It's it not, is. It's not something to argue, and you can point to that by looking at these massive TV deals or these endorsement deals for the players or their salaries. Like, you know, Stephen Curry making $45.8 million in the final year of his deal in 2021. Like that's not inflation people. Like that's because the league is so good right now. Right. Yeah. It's a more marketable product than it's ever been. And just like, I always, it's, I always think of it in terms of like, what do you think LeBron spends per year uh, to like keep himself in shape and like what resources is he able to like draw on to be able to do what he's doing at this phase of his career like and go back 50 years and guys are like just smoking cigarettes at halftime it's like the it's become like the full you know it's a full like lifestyle and all these athletes are better whatever we're going we've already gone off on our first tangent like two minutes in but but right. I think we agree on that. That means we're in for a good podcast. I measure it by the, <laughs> the proximity to the beginning that the first tangent comes. Um, yeah. With the Warriors, I, we normally start off by asking for a general impression about their offseason. I don't necessarily know that we need it here because you just look at it and they did nothing wrong. Like if we want to dive into Kevin Durant, you know, dissing Under Armour or revealing that he has these covert social media accounts, a, a fact to which not only do I believe but I love – uh, yeah, th- their offseason, we could just say like it was you. Kevin Durant took uh, like almost ten million dollars less than he was eligible to make next season. Like that's like you're talking about a Finals MVP in the prime of his career. I know he can opt out. I know he can sign with early bird rights next year. Like that, that's a big freaking deal. It's huge, and and like the the thing that sort of underscores where this team is um, as much as anything is that like it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to do that, right? Like it was. It, it was not a surprise um, because people that did the math were like, well, if they're going to give Iguodala X to keep him and they might, the assumption still was they're going to lose Livingston because I don't think people thought necessarily Durant would take that big of a cut. Right. Um, we and, knew he would go and, non-bird. We didn't know that he was just going to sign for like $25 million flat. Yeah. So like, even if they'd done nothing else, the extent of that cut and, and what it allowed them to do just to keep the guys that, that still matter. Like Livingston is not a big minute player anymore. Um, he's a limited guy, but he's really good at the, the couple things that they need him to do. Like that matters to just keep those guys. And Iguodala obviously is super important still, but if that's all they'd done and just gone with, you know, a couple of back end fillers, um, then that that would have been just like it's an A plus offseason no matter what. But you know, they did a little more. They got a little luckier and kept like everybody that mattered and then added a couple guys in in Omri Caspi and Nick Young who we can talk about more. Um but yeah, they just they they just hit they just hit bombs over the fence like all summer and didn't have to to stay really good. It's amazing that you're bringing back a guy like Javal McGee or Grandpa West or this injury-prone Omri Caspi, and yet it is, of course, Nick Young who showed up to camp in the worst shape from what we oh. had seen on Twitter. Like, of course. Like, it's, oh, man. So my relationship with Nick Young has been, like, has not, <laughs> has not been complicated. I basically thought that he's, like, a performance artist uh, for the last few years and, like, not a helpful player, even though supposedly he started playing defense last year, like, contract year, cough, cough. Um, and he had the skill of creating bad shots. So that's not a skill to me. Um, but then like, this is what the Warriors do when they signed him. I was like, all right, that's too much. I'd rather have given that figure to Caspi and then had young take the minimum. Um, but then I was like, okay, well, you know what? Uh, all he's got to do is, is shoot the ball and he's going to get more open shots than ever. And I like talk myself into it a little bit. Like 
that's how that's how strong the Warriors like cultural pull is that I was like, okay, this guy that I've hated forever, um, he's gonna work. Like he's gonna give them seven or eight good minutes a night. And then like you said, of course he nick younged it and it's just like, nah, I don't really care about basketball that much. Like I'm just gonna be out of shape. Like what how how is this possible that you come into the best situation you've ever been in and just like didn't get in shape? Right, and it's still a contract year. Like, yeah, and and it's a. You said that about the Warriors culture. Like, I assume the same thing. I like wrote a response to it, and it was initially supposed to be this like tongue in cheek thing, and then it turned into this actual. It wasn't profound, but it was a serious article on how Nick Young is going to be the best version of Nick Young by still being Nick Young because he's with the Warriors, and of course, like that blind faith, Nick Young was able to overturn it because you come into camp out of shape and you're not shooting too well. Yeah, it it had the feel to me initially of like, you know what, you know what, everybody said couldn't be done. Make Javale McGee like a serious impact player on a good team, and like, wow, we somehow we did that. Like, what could we do? Like, how do we up the ante on this? And like, there's one guy in the whole league, and that was Nick Young to like see if our culture is strong enough to like just make this person, like you said, the best version of himself. And so far, not so great. Uh, I like, I honestly don't think he's gonna play. Um, like he's just, and not just the out of shape thing, but like, they've got a couple other guys that are going to need minutes. And if somebody gets squeezed, I think it's going to be him. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't blame them. Like he's, he can probably still be, you would think in this, uh, on this team and the the quality of looks they generate for people that don't have to dribble. Uh, He should be able to knock down catch and shoot threes, but he's just going to, he's going to be the garbage time guy. And I'm not going to say it's nice that, like, he might become an issue where, like, oh, he's not playing or he showed up to camp out of shape and then never really came back from that. But, like, the Warriors cannot just take away all our favorite punchlines, you know? Like, (laughs) we don't get to joke about him anymore. Like, what are they going to do, sign Josh Smith and get him the Sixth Man of the Year award at some point? Like, we can't – we need to have something. They can't ruin that for us. They've already destroyed the competitive landscape. This is the ultimate Warriors ripple effect question, and you just you just uncovered it. Like we've got Javale McGee, he's off the board. You can't you can't make him the joke. Nick Young's off the board, probably. Who knows? Um, so who's like the next guy? Who's gonna be? Who's gonna carry that mantle of the guy who's just like, you know, is the is the joke, and and you just wait for him to do something bad or dumb. Like Jordan Crawford's around, but Jordan Crawford is more of like a former Warrior too, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that hey you know what their culture wasn't what it was but they couldn't save jordan crawford and so now he's like gonna matter for some team new yeah. orleans maybe is that where he is yeah and he actually played well for them down the stretch of last season you know i don't know who that guy like we don't have jr smith anymore thanks to lebron maybe he'll act out a little bit now that he was displaced from the starting lineup but it's mm. like i don't like i don't know who that next guy is and like now i'm angry at cleveland and golden state for doing this to us Get after it. You know what? I want Malcolm Brogdon to be that guy just because that would be the most off-brand move for him, like the, the president. <laughs> just, like, like, just, yeah. just become a knucklehead. That's what I want. I want to, I want him to play against type. We need somebody to do it. Um, maybe Dion Waiters. Like I, I don't, I have no, I don't even know. Like he turned into like this serious player. Then he goes to Miami. I'm really yeah. We gotta, we gotta stop getting these guys on functional franchises. You need, you need, you, the Kings need to step up and get somebody and let him just go full knucklehead. Or and and like, you know, New Orleans seems like a good spot for that. You need these these dysfunctional franchises to snap these guys up because we're we're losing a a great uh, a great uh, cultural resource when these guys like straighten out. I still have hope for the Kings there because it's so Kings that when they sign Zach Randolph to like be this mentor and high character guy, <laughs> I don't care that he got arrested for weed. And I know you know his lawyer maintains he was innocent. Like the charges were like. I don't know, they were like basically vacated or became a misdemeanor, but it was so Kings that 
that's what they signed him for, and then he's all of a sudden arrested. Like so, yeah. they're still the Kings still have that juju on them. Oh yeah, I, I got high hopes for the Kings uh, in that regard. I think uh, everybody's a little too high on that off season, and so uh, something's gonna go get screwy. It's it's a guarantee. Yes, we talked about that. I remember you were you were pretty as as hot as you can get about something Kings related. You were pretty heated about the way they spent their their cap space this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, listen, if you haven't done the Kings preview yet, I'll happily come back and give you all my thoughts on that. Yeah. I just think... It wasn't they... as aggressive because we actually did it and you weren't on it, so that's, that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> the Kings are still... The Kings stay the Kings. That's like... That's just... Uh, they're never going to get away from that. And they, they've done a few things well, but, you know, they can't do everything right. That, that That's never going to happen. Um, the I guess the... The other thing that's not really related to the Warriors' actual preview, and it's really tough to find stuff that's worthy to talk about that would be, uh, that report from the Athletic that Joe LaCobe wanted to offer Stephen Curry less than the max. Does Bob <laughs> Myers deserve like some sort of a medal for talking him out of that? Because that's – I understand like they didn't screw Stephen Curry in his first contract because a lot of people – they were either uneasy about that $44 million deal at the time, or they were like, you know, that's, you know, he has ankle problems, like that's market value. But to ask like the two-time MVP who just spent, you know, that deal turned into the best deal in the NBA by the time year one was over, basically. Right. Like, I, right. like I, I honestly do not, I, that like shocked me. Like I knew Kevin Durant took the pay cut. I never, I, we had joked about it, I think on the podcast a couple of times, like imagine if Joe LaCoe just asked Stephen Curry to take less or that the Warriors did that in general. And to find out that that was even on the table to ask, like, thank God Bob Myers didn't, didn't even bring that offer like to the discussions. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, two things. You're 100% right that, like, at the time, like, Curry did not take a pay cut to signing that 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 four year deal. Um, he, it was the risk was was really there. Like, I remember, I remember writing the reaction to that and being like, it's a it's a worth it, I think, but it's a huge risk because this guy just like might not be able to play full seasons, and and that's just like that was the reality at the time. Um, so it's not a pay cut. But that's not the same thing as saying he wasn't grossly underpaid. It was the best contract in the league. Um, I have no idea how. Uh, I think Lakeup is a guy that essentially, um, you know, he's a he's a venture capital guy. He is like a super like An Ayn Rand devotee. Like he is someone who I think would take the approach of like, well, you're never going to know the answer unless you ask for it. You know, as far yes, as like unreasonable requests that could potentially save him money. Uh, but yeah, Myers, like, you know, Curry has made the franchise so much money. Like, if you distill everything down, all this great, you know, stuff they've done, like, it really does start with Curry being the type of player that no one foresaw him becoming. So, yeah, I don't know how that conversation went. I imagine it was uh, pretty short, uh, but it was probably wise not to upset uh, the guy who is essentially responsible for your franchise being what it is. Well, that's how unfathomable it is, is that it probably was. It might have just been, you know, I make fun of him before, but, like, maybe it was just this, like, innocuous inquiry, and he found out just how quickly Bob Myers rebuffed it, and that was it. Because it's so unfathomable that I don't even, I can't even begin to think about, like, what, the, it obviously would have been poorly received, but, like, what are the repercussions of that? Like, are they just able to turn around and be like, oh, we were just kidding, like, here's your $201 million, and it's fine, <laughs> or, or does he actually just, like, go shop? Like, that's how, that's how unthinkable the notion was. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, I guess if you want to really look into it, if if there's a guy who is sort of like, uh, I don't know, professional is a weird word to use, but like, 
if there's anyone that could take like a low ball like that and still not just destroy a locker room and like cause this huge like I want out thing, it would probably be Curry just because he'd be like, no, nah, no, nah, how about how about 201? What do you guys think about that? And then they'd have to say like, yes, absolutely, sir. Yeah, I mean, talk. About, I mean, Kevin Durant saying no one wants to wear Under Armors at first, and then Joe Joe Lacob talking about giving him less than max money. Like that's quite the off season for Stephen Curry being stabbed in the back. Yeah, I, he's just like you can't. He's unflappable. He's like the most polished. Um, he, you know, if any, if there's a criticism of him, is that he's a little boring because um, he's he, in, in a calculated way. Um, he just uh, is is wired to not like allow uh, stories like that to become distractions, and he never says anything in media scrums um, by design. And he just is. He's just about his business. Like, and and it's it's a part of the it's like in terms of superstars to play with, like that's what makes him so easy because he just, he just diffuses like anything that would potentially uh, mess up his team's chemistry. Yeah. And it was, and it's so pointless to like worry about like anything with him. Like he's, he's just become so automatic. Like it it was just like, remember it was kind of before the all-star break. He wasn't really hitting his pull up threes. And then like after the all-star break, he just shot 38 plus percent on them. And that would, that might've been considered like his downturn. It's just, he's so, He's so reliable from that standpoint that it's it's boring, like you said, like in the on the character front because you can't hope that he's going to give you this really aggressive, you know, forceful, brazen response. And then on the court, it's just okay. You know, Stephen Curry's going through a shooting slump, but we know that that it's not going to stay that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit like. Uh, and these are the types of comparisons you have to make with a team like this. It's a lot like Tim Duncan, where if your if your best player is the most low maintenance guy on your roster, although I guess probably Clay Thompson would give uh, Curry a run for that, um, then like it's really easy for everything to fall into line. And that's that's another thing that that makes the Warriors what they are is that like Curry is not a guy whose feathers get ruffled, and he doesn't ruffle feathers. So it's like if you're gonna look for distractions or, or drama or something. Um, it's just not going to come from him. And that sort of, uh, defines like the, uh, you know, the makeup and, and sort of the attitude of the team. And I, I think that's all part of what would this, this question becomes, he's more important to the Warriors than Kevin Durant. Correct. And he might even be despite like, despite just public perception and despite like what we're going to see in rankings and despite a finals MVP, like there's a case to be made that Stephen Curry is still the, second best player in basketball or at least if you want at least better than than Kevin Durant just because of what he does and, and how he bends defenses with his just uninhibited shot selection where so much of what Durant does is I'm not even downplaying it and I don't want that to be misinterpreted but because he has that length and he's so tall like he's just able to rise and fire over everybody Curry doesn't necessarily have that advantage and he just warps defenses because there's just no spot like you're just not safe from anywhere and because he's willing to work off the ball and not in just a standstill role but he'll cut like crazy and I I do think uh obviously the Warriors help him out on defense a lot but he's I've never looked at him as a bad defender like he's even statistically he's mostly an even defender they don't have to quote-unquote stash him uh 75 percent of the time like these other point guards I I always thought and I guess not always he's been playing with Kevin Durant for a year but like as soon as it was just assumed like even by the end of last season after that finals run that oh Kevin Durant's just still the second best player in basketball like I just think there's a case to the contrary to be made there yeah, and I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think it is it is a complicated question that I think depending on sort of where you are, um, so put it this way, I think if you pulled players, 
Um, and it's like, and we'll actually see this with the All Star Game. Like, I think Kevin Durant is someone that players would say, um, "Oh, he's, he's he's harder to guard. Um, he's so tall. He's so long. He can get his shot whenever you want." Players always favor the guy like that. That's why players still think Carmelo Anthony is so much better than everyone else does because, like, oh, he's he's physically difficult to guard, and he has these tools, these these conventional tools. Um, but I think most, uh, and again, like you can't have this conversation without it seeming like you're denigrating Durant, which like that is not what this is about. Like Absolutely. if he's not, if he's not the second best player in the league, then he's like third or fourth or whatever. Right. Um, and, but, but for Curry, like you said, um, he's never going to make the defensive impact that Durant makes, which he just decided to start making last year as a rim protector. Um, but Curry is a guy that just from, from the moment, like it flipped for him basically under Kerr. And just a little bit at the end of the Jackson Mark Jackson tenure, but not quite. From the moment he sort of became what he is, um, which is really like the first guy to just be a threat from 30 feet with a live dribble, um, he he fundamentally alters what defenses have to worry about in a way that Durant just doesn't. Um, and and you know maybe there's going to be a few more guys that do that. You've already seen like Damian Lillard is sort of a, a pale copy of that. Um, like Isaiah Thomas did a little bit of that last year. Um, but just to have a guy that inverts uh, the areas of the floor that you're supposed to worry about, meaning like, well, it used to be nothing in the paint, nothing in the paint. Now it's like, well, we can't let Curry get loose from 30 feet. Um, that changes everything about a defense, and the effect that has on your team offensively is is what makes him, I think I agree with you, uh, whatever you want to say, more important, like objectively better is, is like a scarier thing to say, but maybe is also true. Um, but I think that's just what it is. Like he's a paradigm shifter and Durant is really good hall of famer, great player, MVP. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't have the same effect on like the fundamentals of how basketball is played as Curry does. Right, and just the the impact that the that has on his teammates, and you even see it with Durant, whose job on offense becomes so much easier in a way where even if you told me that Russell Westbrook would cut his usage in half and was willing to play off the ball more, like Kevin Durant's job still doesn't get uh, that convenient essentially when it's Russell Westbrook as opposed. And then the argument obviously becomes, yes, Stephen Curry is better than Russell Westbrook, but to alter the game for so many of his teammates in a way that's so translatable to me. And we talk about, and Kevin Durant's Kevin Durant is one of those players that you can just imagine saying, well, yes, he's the rare star that can fit in like anywhere because the argument was for the Warriors, Kevin Durant would be easier to welcome in than LeBron James last year, and that was absolutely true. Stephen yeah. Curry's like the same way, but even to an even bigger extent. Right. Well, it's like the measure of – so often you hear the measure of a player is like is how much better does he make everybody else. And a lot of times that's attributed to like, well, that's like the Lonzo Ball thing. Like, oh, you know, his passing is infectious. He gets guys to run the lanes because they're going to expect the ball, and that makes guys better. And, you know, the Magic Johnson thing, John Stockton, whoever you want to use, um, Curry makes guys better in totally different ways just because of the attention he draws, the places he draws attention, which is like – everywhere but especially really far from the basket um he makes guys better in ways that durant cannot um and that really nobody else can and it's it's it forces you to think about the game differently um but i think if you're really looking at it critically um that's kind of undeniable that the impact that he has yeah and i i guess we've all both you and i've just lost followers i think since that, since that <laughs> conversation ended that's all right that's listen we were here to speak the truth or or whatever we think the truth is and that's pr that might be 
the degree to which we can manufacture any drama with the Warriors. It's like you, yeah. wrote, you wrote about this, I think, once or twice over the summer, uh, that complacency is probably their biggest concern. And then you went on a search in another article that I really enjoyed, like in, in like looking for other weaknesses. And you came up with like bench scoring and creation. And, and then there were the turnovers. It seems like that's been sort of the same trope since they became really good. And then at the end of it, it's just kind of like, do we worry about Draymond Green shooting when he shot lights out from three in the playoffs? It's just, I find it, is there anything to actually worry about with this team? And assuming the answer is just complacency, like what is, is that even a real and ever present danger? Well, like as a blanket rule, um, you gotta, you gotta like not include injuries as part of this discussion because that applies to everybody. Right. Um, but so complacency is like where you have to go because it, you know, it's, it's hard to repeat, uh, teams, you know, there's this malaise of of winning a title and like, (coughs) sorry, you're gonna have to cough button that out. We need a cough button. Yeah. Well, then I'm going to cough again. Um, I'm going to repeat my cough. (coughs) Um, so like the idea that, uh, the warriors are going to coast or they're going to build bad habits or they're going to whatever, um, take it easy. Like that's appealing. Um, partly because like that's what we need to believe to sort of infuse some tension or unpredictability into a season that may not have much otherwise. Um, but partly cause it's just logical, like that happens. Um, but to me, like the way that they're wired and the way that they've got these guys that just manufacture, uh, challenges when, where those aren't, they're not where they aren't real. Um, where like Draymond Green remembers everybody drafted ahead of him. Um, Curry like didn't win the MVP, so he's got a reason to get after it. And Clay Thompson just like his emotions don't ever change, so he doesn't know how to coast. And like Durant, uh, you know, he's uh, still Kevin Durant, and maybe he wants to just really stick it to the Thunder. They're always going to find these things. Um, does that mean that you know that that doesn't change the fact that they may rest guys more? that they may not, you know, try to gun for a bunch of wins because that came back to bite them a couple years ago. Uh, I, I just think the complacency thing is is a, is a straw that you grasp at. Um, but to me, it doesn't seem realistic that this is going to be an issue for them just because of the types of guys that, that make up the team. There's um, Would there be anyone better in the league to generate, like, fake chips on the shoulder than Draymond Green to keep a team like this motivated? Is that, I'm trying to think of one that I just can't come up with anybody. No, that's the thing. Like, uh, whatever. I mean, he's he's a totally unique player. Um, his skills are, in, he's got a package of skills that we just like haven't really seen before. Um, but like that might be his best. Is that like it is not hard to make him feel slighted. Like he's, and this is true of like every NBA player. I think to some degree, um, everybody they all just have this wiring of like nobody believed in me, um, and that motivates me. Um, even if you're someone like Steph Curry, who like everybody has always believed in you, dude, like you're, you know, I mean, I don't care if you went to Davidson, like everybody acknowledged you're one of the best players in college, et cetera. Um, everybody had, they all have that, but greens is like to, to this insane degree, uh, where, yeah, you're right. Like if the locker room is down, like guess who's going to be screaming, like guess who's going to be yelling at Steph Curry to like pick it up. Like how many guys can do that? Um, and green is just wired that way. It's yeah, and that's why the complacency argument. It's a valid one, just because we're talking about a team. It's so hard to get to four straight NBA Finals, no matter who you are. And the Warriors, they yep. have some like fresh blood in there because Durant is only one year into his tenure. But 
like that like it seems almost with this team that you have to just say injuries like is the biggest threat and that's the disclaimer that we leave out because it's not it's not a real one and even you know you look at the warriors uh, Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, Draymond Green over the past 3 seasons during this tear have missed a combined 31 games and yeah. the the feeling should be well, at some point that luck is going to run out but they also didn't have Kevin Durant for 20 last year and we're just fine and we're looking at a team that ended I'm, I hope I don't get this number one. They were 31 and two last year, right? Towards the end of the playoffs and the regular season. Like it was, I think just, that's right. So I, we talk about them not gunning for wins. They weren't necessarily gunning for wins last year until they got to the playoffs. They end up with 67 in the regular season. It feels like they could take that same path or enter some quasi cruise control and still just end up with 70. And that's, you know what? Take 20 games of Kevin Durant away. Take 20 games of Stephen Curry away. Like they just have so much residual star power that does that even matter when we're using that, that super long shot argument of, well, injuries could hurt this team. Well, yeah. And you know what? I think, I think it's a longer shot argument for them than for a lot of teams. Um, It's easy to sort of talk yourself into the idea that, well, they've been healthy and nobody stays healthy forever. Therefore they're going to have injuries this year. Um, to me, there aren't that many teams that manage players minutes better than the Warriors do. I mean, uh, believe me, like I am, I do not have insight into the metrics they use and like what they're, you know, uh, I know they use a bunch of biometric stuff in practice and they manage guys load and they, they can tell when guys are fatigued. Um, but their minute totals are low. Like they just don't play guys more than like 33, 34 minutes. And they, they sit guys for entire fourth quarters a lot because they build these big leads. So you know, if anything, there are times where you're like, man, somebody, this guy needs some more reps. Like this guy needs to play a little bit more. Um, but they just don't do it. They have this window where they know how long they can play guys. Um, like look at JaVale McGee, for example, he averaged less than 10 minutes a game last year. Um, and that's by design because they're worried about his health and just him holding up. Um, and that's, they, they have that approach for every single guy. They know what they can get out of them before the risk starts to get, uh, like unpalatable. And they just they just they don't play guys like 45 minutes. It doesn't happen. Um, so to the extent you can mitigate the risk of injuries, like they're they're about as good at it as anybody. So so even that is one of those things where you're like, yeah, injuries might be an issue, but it's not. They're not they're not ordinary even in that regard. And is the do the turnovers or the you know the bench scoring or or the shot creation outside of Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant? Do either of those issues actually bug you at all when looking at this team's trajectory? Uh, I mean, I don't, so the turnovers are the one that, uh, you know, they bother Steve Kerr the most and it's sort of the most frustrating, I guess, as a, as an observer, just because like, so for the Warriors, like the expected value of an offensive possession is just higher for for, than for anybody else, just because of how good they are. Um, so like a turnover is somehow worse because it's like, well, you just cost yourself like more than a normal turnover would cost because you were going to hit a three or whatever. Um, but like, they're just indivisible from how they play. Um, it's been an emphasis, a point of emphasis though. I know, um, in training camp to the extent they've had one with this China trip that like they want their passes. This these are the details you can focus on when, when you're at this level, like they're trying to make sure their passes like are more accurate in terms of like timing and being in a player's shooting pocket and all this stuff. Um, so they're going to work on that stuff, but like, if you play this high wire brand, like, and your whole offense is predicated on guys like sprinting everywhere all the time, um, you're going to turn it over. And I just think that like, if you try to curtail that too much, then you diminish like a lot of what makes this team good. So you're just gonna have to live with it. Um, and it doesn't to me rise to the level of like, this is fatal. 
Um, because I think like for all the talk of it, um, I think, I don't know what they ranked in like turnover, uh, frequency last year. Um, but it wasn't like they weren't last in the league. So they were 20th. Um, that's bad. They've turned it over on 14.4% of their possessions. Um, not great, but like this, the, the, the Hornets turned it over the least and they're at 11.7%. So like not fatal, definitely not fatal. And all the top five pace. So yeah. You're gonna have you're gonna have a raw number and that's gonna be high, but who cares? Um, shot creation on the bench that's an issue um, unless <laughs> unless our buddy Nick Young just creates a lot of bad shots, which are just turnovers by a different name. Um, but yeah, they're gonna have these little flaws. Um, but I mean, like they lost Ian Clark, uh, and they're gonna give those minutes to Patrick McCaw, who is you know everybody thinks he's gonna be better. Um, Caspi's gonna suck up some of those minutes and like boom, they're they're you're set. So um those little things it's it's hard it's hard to get worked up about them. You have to talk about them um because you're always looking for flaws, but I don't know. I mean they're not things that I think they're worried about, frankly. Nor does it seem like they should be. Uh the the other thing I was wondering if you can explain, and I'm not sure if this is just because Draymond Green didn't shoot well in the regular season from three, or if Andre Godala, like for someone who plays on a team like the Warriors, him shooting at basically a league average clip or a little bit lower isn't great. Like the death squad was shooting under 34% last year when they were in the, from three in the regular season when that lineup was in there. And then in the playoffs, I think they were under 32% from three, if I was mistaken. Um, I can't, or I can't remember what that number was, but oh, they were at 33.9% in the regular season, the death lineup from three. And then during the playoffs, they were at 33.3%. And I always just found that odd because it seems like that's a lineup that should be, I don't know if it's just, and a green shot better in the playoffs. So I don't, I'm just wondering if you can just explain that to me or if that, that's an anomaly we're just not going to see materialize again. I'd say mostly anomaly, um, but that is that is true. Like the death, the death lineup, like they kind of sucked last year, and like relative to the, to two years ago. Um, and and I and the, that's another thing. The Warriors actually weren't very good in clutch situations. Um, they they after being like historically good um, two years ago when they won seventy three. Um, so if you're looking, I mean, the league is not hoping to hear this, but like if you're looking for reasons why the Warriors could be better. Like that's a huge thing. Is that lineup has to be better, and a lot of the sort of discomfort, I guess, um, with that group had to do with I think Curry and Durant like figuring out what to do mm-hmm. and, and how to play off each other. Um, you know, famously, they sort of decided midway through the year that okay, Curry needs a ball more um, because off the ball it's just easier for teams to beat him up, and and it's just we're just better when he has the ball. How, whatever happens after he initially has it um, is good. And that really, you know, they got a lot better midway through the year when they made that decision. But for me, like expecting that line, that closing lineup um, of Thompson, Curry, Durant, uh, Iguodala, and Green to do anything but just be dominant um, is a mistake. And the thing you alluded to about the three-point shooting, particularly, that's another thing. Curry shot the lowest percentage from three in his career last year. He was like forty-one point four or forty-one point one. Never been lower. Thompson shot it worse from three than he had since like 2012-13. Durant shot it worse from three than he had since 2010-11. Um, like that's not gonna continue. These like they're too good as shooters, and the quality of looks they get are too good. So I think all three of those guys are gonna shoot it better. Um, so that affects the death lineup. That affects the offense as a whole. Um, so that's kind of one of the like my hot take is that I think they're gonna have the highest offensive rating in history this year. Like I just think it sounds insane, um, but 
Like there's just, that's just one of those things that like, if you look at it objectively, like they, those three guys should all shoot it better. So what does that do for your offense? I think it's going to be, it's going to be like historically good. I, I, I don't really have a rebuke to that either. <laughs> that's just, that's like, <laughs> that. that's just, it just seems like kind of a fact. And the, the clutch situations, and I remember reading that and I, I guess I just didn't notice it because it's so hard to even like, sometimes it's hard to go like nuanced into the Warriors and looking for problems because you don't think you're going to turn up anything. Uh, you, you brought up the great point about Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry kind of getting acclimated to one another. It's almost, there almost has to be a situation where it's like, how much was that where they just decided to come back because they uh, fell down behind by too many? Or like they just weren't used to being in clutch situations, period, because yeah. they were just blowing out teams and they were so used to garbage time anyway. Like there's for the starters, like there's a point in the season where it's almost like, oh, wow, we're playing in the fourth quarter. This is freaking weird. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the thing like – the, the narrative of this team two years ago before Durant was that, like, in the 73-win season, they would kind of half-ass it for, like, good chunks of the game because they knew they'd have a five-minute spurt with usually the death lineup where they just outscore the team, the, the opponent, by, like, 14 points in five minutes and boom, game over. Like, or whatever it was. And, that, and so that was, like, how they played. And I think it was just different um, this past season. Um, whether that's Durant and Curry figuring it out, whether that's the expectation that we know we can play five minutes at a time and just win games that way, um, maybe leading to some, there's there's that complacency we were talking about. Um, I don't know. Um, but, like, this is the other thing. Um, they broke out the, the Curry-Durant pick and roll in the finals, um, and it was just unstoppable, obviously. Um, and Curry doesn't like to use it because he wants the ball to move. He wants everyone to get a touch. Um, and the Warriors were the lowest. They, they, they devoted the fewest uh, percentage of possessions to plays finished by the pick-and-roll ball handler and the roll man last year. Um, so, like, that's they've got that, too, right? It's like if, if they bog down in clutch situations or whatever, they can go to that. And I think Kerr is comfortable in the right moments using it. You won't see it a lot. But like that's the ultimate. It's the ultimate ace in the hole. Is they can just do that. They can run a pick and roll with two guys that you can't guard, and 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 there's going to be no fix for that. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to see if they would break it out more in the regular season. Um, I almost just wonder how much of it is. You know, no one can guard it, no matter how much they plan for it. But maybe you still just don't want to break it out too often, so that it becomes just this commonplace thing that maybe teams are able to figure out how to adjust at some point. But I nothing. And there are basketball minds way smarter and more nuanced than I am. I, nothing springs to mind, though, of what anyone could begin to do against that. Yeah, like that's the call definitely out uh, out here is that anytime something went wrong last year, there's like, oh, Kurt, why doesn't Kurt just run more pick and roll? That's what everybody runs, and they've got these two guys. And, and even I was like, I was of that mind, too. It's like, why wouldn't you just do the best thing all the time? Like, it's, there's, the, why, why not? And then Kerr was Kerr made good points. Like, hey, guess what? Steve Kerr is smarter about basketball than I am. Like, can you can you, can you believe it? Like, he was he said like, no, it's just uh, I just want everybody to touch the ball because I think they play better all around if they feel like they're like doing something other than standing still and waiting for a kickout, which is true. Uh, it's just it's true. Um, but he still has that, and it's and it's nice to have that for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering almost how much of their like crunch time struggles were just a little bit of them 
like is the ball just not moving as much or they just because it seems like they use a lot of teams that yes they get slower in crunch time like the Warriors are a fast team and and they didn't even come close I believe ranking in the top 10 in pace in crunch time and again we're working with a 25 game sample here I looked that up while you were talking like they went at 25 of their games went into like the final five minute disclaimers and is that just something like you're so not worried but like the focus becomes like well we're just going to have Steph and Kevin Durant uh, either or shot create, and that's going to you know kind of bog down the offense a little bit because it's not as free flowing as it was throughout the first you know forty forty three minutes of the game. Yeah, I think that was an issue, and and like you know if you consider where Durant came from and how the Thunder played, it was a your turn, my turn thing, like to the nth degree. To you know that's that's what the Thunder's offense was with Durant and Westbrook, and so um, I know that Durant like he really struggled with. Last year, when he would pass the ball, he would stay where he was. And that's like not, that doesn't fly in Kerr's offense. You pass and you move and you cut or you screen or you do something like stagnant stuff just is not what the Warriors want to see. And so I think, especially at the end of games where Durant's, you know, mentality is I get the ball, I'm going to score. And Curry's mentality, even though he does it differently, is kind of similar. They did slip into your turn, my turn stuff, and, and that did bog it down. Um, I don't expect you'll see that again, but it is, it's always going to be kind of tricky. Um, when you've got two guys like that, uh, that, that should, you know, all things being equal, be thinking like, all right, I'm going to get, this is, this is my time, you know, uh, kind of moving off that. And we, we spent so much time talking about Stephen Curry, Kevin Durant, and then even Draymond Green throughout all this as what Clay Thompson does for this team become almost underrated. I know, there was, I wouldn't say there was like this huge uproar when SI.com ranked him as the 20th best player in the league entering this season. I did find him particularly hard to place when I was doing NBA 100 for Bleacher Report, which I'm still working on. And, you know, I used our colleague Adam Frommel as like this guy to bounce these rankings off of, and he kept trying to get me to pull down Clay Thompson lower. And I just, I understand that like he averages, at, I don't know how many times I have this, like negative dribbles a game at this point. But like, <laughs> huge, like he still works on the defensive end. Like the assignments he covers are tough. And then the bigger thing to me, and I'm not sure how much this needs to wait uh, into these types of rankings or how we view a player, but you try and get another 20-something to just buy into this role when he's an all-star, when people are prepared to call him a top 20, 25 player, where a majority of his shots, they're coming off cuts and just off the catch. And we have to imagine, what would it be like if someone else with his skill set was, was in this role? Would they buy into it as much? And then for me, the other part of it, we also have to project, like, I think he could, he's never, he would never be as efficient if he was like the number one option on a team, but he can do more. He can score off the dribble. We've seen in the past, not so much anymore, I feel like, but that he's been able to score in the post on smaller guards. I, I am at the point where I feel like even when uh, a lot of the defensive metrics, like they don't necessarily favor Clay Thompson all the time, but I'm, I've, I think that's one of the hills that I'm just prepared to die on now is that Clay Thompson has somehow become underrated. And if you don't think he's a top 25 NBA player, I, I don't like, I don't know what the argument is against that. Are you just uncomfortable, unnerved by saying, Oh crap, the Warriors have four top 25 players in the same lineup. I, I don't know what else there is to, to argue against that. It's tough um, because like so much of what works in his favor and makes him great can sort of also be used to make the case that he's overrated. Um, just, you know, he's in, he's inarguably in like an optimal situation um, as a guy who is, he does have these other skills that you mentioned. Um, he, he did post up a ton 
um, when Mark Jackson was coach and everybody hated it, but he wasn't bad at it um, because he's always going to be bigger than, than the one or the two that's guarding him. But like just as a catch and shoot guy, he is, is phenomenal that like, this is not a revelation and it's hard to find a better place to be a catch and shoot guy than playing with Curry and Durant. Um, so he's in a position where like, he's never, ever asked to do things that he's not great at. And all they want him to do are the things that he's awesome at, which is basically defend and shoot when he's open. Um, and so you could say that like, well, if he's somewhere else, they might ask him to do more. That's definitely cutting into efficiency and maybe that, you know, wears him out or, or whatever. Um, I think that like, I agree. The numbers don't always love him on defense, but on the ball, he's just so big and he's so dialed in, um, that he's a great defensive player. Um, he's not awesome off the ball because as Clay Thompson's whole like makeup suggests, like he's a little spacey sometimes, but, um, (laughs) in terms of like, in terms of like what he's asked to do and how he makes this team better, I don't know if there's a guy that you could put into his role that would fit better. And I mean, they didn't trade him for Kevin Love, right? And they decided that uh, they wouldn't trade him for Paul George. So to me, like they're aware of that. The Warriors are, and and top. I don't know. I you know the ranking is tough. I I don't envy you for having to figure that out. Um, but he in his role is just like there's nobody that would fill it better. I don't know who you'd pick. I I just even the bigger thing for me, like someone. I, he's still scoring, so it's so tough. Like his scoring average was, considering like what happened to the Warriors, they added Kevin Durant, and to see his scoring average just go basically unchanged or whatever it up being like that's incredible but he's I, I just the defensive thing and like I get the space out um issues and I, I even when I was looking I saw that he covered more ground per game this past year than anyone on the Warriors and that seems like raw ground covered because it always seems like he's chasing guys on the ball a lot more yep. than everybody else on this team where it's not as much switching and I'm not sure whether that's impressive whether it's not like it He's become sort of an enigma, and I, I think I've just started to lean toward the slant of, no, this guy's become underrated because he's seriously good at basketball, and I, I'm done penalizing uh, players because they're in their optimal roles. Like, I, I, if, yeah. it was, if it was an issue of playing time, if it was an issue that we're seeing his, his shot totals crater or his defensive assignments are getting noticeably easier, I get it. Like, I had to resist putting Andre Godala, like, higher than I did, and I think – uh, where I eventually put him, it'll still make people a little uneasy, but he's not going to play as many minutes, and he's in this more of a small burst role, even though he's so wicked important to what the Warriors do, particularly defensively in the playoffs. But Clay Thompson, like I just feel as if he shouldn't be subject to those caveats. I, you know, I think that's a really, not to get too like basketball philosophical, but... Um, let's do it. Let's Okay, so let's let's think about this. I think one of the worst things you can have on a team is a guy who absolutely has to be the best player, but if he is your best player, you are going nowhere. Um, This was, back in the day for Warriors fans, this was Monte Ellis. Um, For the Kings, that's DeMarcus Cousins. Um, And for the Pelicans, not so much now, because Anthony Davis is there. Um, But like, if that's the worst thing, the best thing is a guy who could theoretically be the best player on a lot of teams, but appreciates that he's in an optimal situation and doesn't want more, right? And that's, that's Thompson, because like you said, he could go somewhere and get 30 if he got 25 shots a night. Easy. No problem. Um, but I think he and like he's already talking about taking less on his next deal. Like that is, I mean, there just aren't a the lot Bay of guys. Area like must that. have some great weed if oh, that's just man. what he's talking about. <laughs> I think I think it's recreationally legal on January first, too. So I mean he's not even gonna have to jump through any 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 hoops anymore. <laughs> um 
<laughs> so the thing like that's hugely valuable so you're right we shouldn't penalize a guy for being in an optimal situation maybe we should celebrate that like he's cool with it because it's letting him do the most that he can do in a limited way and that's super hard to accept for a lot of players and it's i mean even down i know he got 80 million dollars from anta and I, I hopefully i'm pronouncing that right but, but like that's that's so clay thompson is like he could be with nike like he could right. be with jordan or adidas and yes, he got his eighty million dollars from Anta, but like what? Like someone in his position, like I don't think you could have if Anta came in and outbid like Kevin Durant with the Nike thing. Like it wasn't the whole spiel that Under Armour was actually offering more for Kevin Durant, and he still went to Nike. And I'm not again, Clay Thompson's getting eighty million dollars from Anta, but it's right down to the shoe company that he represents. Is he's he's so different from another twenty something All Star in his situation because I feel like there are people we saw it with Kyrie Irving, and I don't want to draw that relationship because it was so different but Kyrie Irving got sick of of being sort of the underlord in Golden State and he actually had time as the guy in Cleveland before LeBron James came along it was never a situation where the Warriors dangled something in front of Klay Thompson and took it away the way Cleveland did with LeBron's free agency and when they re-signed Irving but guys at this point in their career like he could want more and yet we're all worried about when will the Warriors have to bust this up because of luxury tax reasons and he's like hey did you know I might take some less just to stick around yeah it's it's interesting like I always hate to make uh like a it's hard to resist it but I hate to make the value judgment on like Kyrie's decision right because you know it's just if you look at him as an employee um, maybe he 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 thinks that he can do more, and that's an irrational belief based on everything we've seen. Um, his teams can't win if he's he's another guy. Maybe that if he's your best player, it's hard for you to really have that high of a ceiling. Um, but like, I don't want to say like, oh, that's selfish or that's whatever. But it is different. And if you're looking at what makes teams really good, it's having more guys like Thompson in terms of like, you know, what they how high maintenance they are, or what they need emotionally. And it's harder with guys like Irving, and that you know there are a million things like this with the Warriors where it's like this is this is just one of those things that so, they're so lucky to have that has put them on this this trajectory. Um, but Thompson's sort of whole makeup is definitely one of those things that's allowed them to be what they are. Yeah, I, yeah. I it, it's and Irving was another guy who's tough to place on those lists because like part of me just wants to put him behind Kemba Walker because Kemba Walker's defense is so <laughs> underrated. But it's just it, like those guys are just tough to rank. And I, I, again, like I said before, now that we're running in circles, I lean more towards the Thompson is underrated stance on that now, at least at this point. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, Draymond Green, one, do we see improved shooting from him compared to last year? I know he's getting fewer attempts. And that's another guy who's just made sacrifices and basically said, well, I'm going to be like the ball tarrier and that vessel, like to give the ball to Steph, to Duran or, or Clay. And, and that's a fantastic I'll say adjustment. You want to say concession because he's been making yeah. it for essentially two years now. And then two, gut feeling. Do you think he uh, successfully defends his defensive player of the year award? Um, first, the shooting. You know, two years ago he shot it better than anybody possibly could have ever expected. And and until until I see another year like that, I'm going to view that as the outlier. Um, and last year was it got a little rough. Um, you know, his shot mechanically is never, I shouldn't say never, because he shot whatever it was, like 40% um, two years ago. But uh, it's flat. He misses short a lot. Um, he's got this weird lean-in. It's not one that lends itself to looking at it and saying, like, well, that guy's definitely shooting 38%, like, for, you know, indefinitely. Um, I think it's we're going to see closer to what he was last year than two years ago as far as his shot. 
Um, but I think the, the real thing with him is like, he's undersized. Um, and his game, as much as it's based on smarts is also based on just in ridiculous athleticism, like weird athleticism, like quickness and anticipation. And when that starts to go, maybe that's when you worry about the warriors, like losing a piece of themselves, they can't replace. I don't see that happening this year. Um, which is why I also think he is going to repeat. Um, and whenever you do this, whenever you talk about, uh, 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 green's, defense and him being the best defender in the league which i think he is you get murdered by rudy gobert stands and rudy gobert is also not afraid to like retweet your articles with those the eye emoji uh which he did when i did the who you got uh, draymond green or Kawhi leonard um which maybe he doesn't understand that sometimes assignments are just two guys and you don't get to mention a third um <laughs> but like i think gobert could be as good a defender as green this year um but he's just not gonna get seen and DPOYs repeat like a lot. Um, I think they it's it's been around since eighty two eighty three. The award has, and I think there have been nine back to back winners. Um, and guys like Ben Wallace have like four, and Dwight Howard's got a bunch. So um, I think since defense is so hard to follow and measure, once a guy wins it, there's this huge bias that that gets into his favor, not that Green needs it, and they just win more. Like that's that's what I see happening as much as anything. I almost go the other way. I do think he's the best defender in the league, and it's some of it's just physical limitations. Rudy Gobert does a lot for a big yeah. guy. Like he defend, he's great. He defended more spot ups than Gordon Hayward last year. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Good, so good stat. Yeah. So that's that to me. Like that's just incredible. And for a big guy, again, he does so much more than just protect the rim. And I could see not that Green's going to suffer from voter fatigue, but for the past three years now, we've been talking about like Kawhi versus Draymond. Um, and Rudy Gobert's kind of wedged his way into that discussion. So I, I, I favor him for the award this year, but there's so much of me feels uneasy about that because Green just has more responsibility. And if the voters recognize that, like if this doesn't become necessarily, a lot of times these awards are, they're so driven by narratives, but if it's, if you're looking at it and you really watch the way Draymond Green defends, like that's nothing against Rudy Gobert. He can't shoulder all those responsibilities because you know what? He shouldn't be switching onto point guards from, you know, outside the three point line. And that's not what he does. He'll close out on them. He defends in space better than probably any traditional big in the game. But like he's just never gonna have those extra duties that Green has because he is just such this unique player. And I, I, you know, the Defensive Player of the Year award, it's not to me, it's not always a referendum on who the actual best defender in the NBA is. Just like we know the MVP is not uh, the end all be all on who's the best player in the league. We know it's LeBron James, even though he doesn't win the award anymore. So I, I don't actually don't know where to go, and I just lean towards Rudy Gobert because I think the Warriors get so much shine, and you know we've talked about this kind of uprising from the Rudy Gobert stands, and I think even some writers are like kind of they get it's not even just jazz writers, but they get sensitive to it, and there are some who want to push back against this idea that you know big guys like they still really matter in t in today's NBA. And what I think would make Rudy Gobert's case ironclad, and why I ultimately go with him is I still fancy the Jazz a playoff team and not just like this eighth seed. Like I think they're going to end up like maybe six or just comfortably inside the Western Conference playoffs. And if you look at him without Gordon Hayward, without George Hill, anchoring that Jazz team into another top three defensive rating or whatever it will be, like that, it, that's just tough to – that context is tough to refute because of the talent that he actually lost over the offseason. Yep. First of all, I agree with you on the Jazz. Um, this isn't the Jazz preview, but I, I, I'm on board. Um, I think they're going to be really good. We've turned this into a league-wide preview, and I think our <laughs> listeners should thank us for, for just yeah. drumming up the interest. 
Well, you have to uh, with the Warriors. But yeah, I think I think there's a lot to that. The narrative does as much as it shapes up for Green. Like if the Warriors have the best defense in the league this year, which is you know they were like two tenths of a point off of it last year, and it's completely reasonable. Um, and Green is going to get seen on national TV. Who knows how many times? One um, of eighty-two, maybe. Yeah, eighty-one, like probably. Yeah, I don't know. Their second, their second game against, uh, I don't know, Atlanta probably won't quite make it. But, uh, but that's going to be hard to get past for a lot of people that, you know, defense is hard to fall, hard to figure, and you know, casual voters, which of which, unfortunately, I think there are a lot still, um, are just going to be like, well, he was the best defensive player. It's kind of like the MVP, best player, best team type of thing. Best defensive player, best defensive team. But you're right, Gobert. Um, if the Jazz finish top three, which they probably should defensively, um, there's this nice little uh, big man renaissance idea to be had there. There's a lot to that. I could see that happening. I like I said, I think Gobert could be Gobert by a lot of metrics was more defensively valuable than Green last year. I think he could do that again. Um, but like nobody else guards five positions really well and nobody else plays center at six seven and nobody else is a prime it's just like it's just it's hard to for me to get away from green on that but i, I take your point yeah i yeah the, the five positions thing is like there there are guys that we like to think do it and Giannis and the kumpo might come close one day but even if Draymond Green's stronger, but you know that it's got to be like a five inch like advantage that attend kumpo has like green's a good rim protector at six seven which right. is just like that's all like just smarts and anticipation. It's not like oh he's just out leaping. You know he'll out leap some of these guys, but he's just he's so good and he is the best defender in the NBA. And I know Zach Lowe has said this a bunch of times over at ESPN.com. He he might be just like in pure function the best defender the NBA has ever has because who has ever had to ferry uh, this type of switchability? And the answer is no one, I would think. No, and just quick stat as I was looking this up, uh, Gobert averaged, uh, opponents shot 48.9% within six feet with Gobert as the primary defender. Green was 48.3%. Now, Gobert defended two more shots inside per game, but like when you're there with Gobert uh, in terms of field goal percentage allowed at the rim, which is kind of the only area where you should ever use that stat, the various nerds have told me, um, <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, like, it's if you can defend the rim at a go bear level, and you're six seven, and you switch everywhere. Um, it's hey, guess what? The Warriors have another thing that makes them unfair. Is basically the end of the end of that uh, diatribe. Yeah, it was. And so when I was ranking the the centers uh, for BR, I was looking at. I was trying to just get a little bit deeper on like the quality of the rim protection. And if you look at, there was a hundred and. 25 players I think I'm doing this off the cuff for memory right now there's 125 players who guarded at least 200 shots at the rim and Draymond Green ranked fifth just behind Rudy Gobert at fourth in points allowed per shot so those are two high volume guys and I think the the excuse me Draymond Green was fourth Rudy Gay was third and there was uh the people in front of them it was Roy Hibbert and Joel Embiid who benefited from we barely got to that 200 mark so to do right. what those guys do in volume like the points per shot thing of how Rudy Gobert didn't surprise me because he's a monster but you look at Draymond Green in that volume where yes there was like a a couple hundred shot difference but Draymond Green still defended more than 500 opportunities at the rim and he's gonna just be so like stingy it's, it's incredible to me yeah I'll, I'll flip it on you I want to ask you a question do you think the Warriors offense or defense will be better this year like if you define them by one side or the other, which you don't necessarily have to with a team like this, but which do you think will rank higher? I think it'll be the offense just because one, it'll be, 
I, I think the competition won't be as stiff there. San Antonio, I still believe, is going to be very good defensively. You have the Utah Jazz in that conversation. And just the other thing for me is I'm, I'm just very interested to see how Andre Godala, how Sean Livingston age defensively. Uh, same thing for David West. I want to see what what's the defense going to be like when they have more of these traditional Briggs, when you're going to play Pachulia and McGee. Like, are those numbers going to hold? And if... If we're to believe that they even use Nick Young, and I'll, you know what, I'll remove him from the equation, but if everyone expects Patrick McCaw to play a little bit more, like is he going to impact your defense, even though uh, he's long and switchy in sort of this adverse fashion for more minutes of a game than he obviously did last year? So I just question the, the offense, and also this just says more about the offense. I think the defense will still be top three in the league, but the offense, I don't think you can come close to naming one that's going to be within relative proximity to the Warriors. And I know the popular pick will be the Rockets and like, you know, that's fine, but they just don't have like some of these guys are one new to each other. Even if we think Chris Paul uh, and James Harden are going to be seamless fits and just look at the gap last year was the Warriors were 113.2 points per 100 possessions. The Rockets come in second at 101.8, like that 1.6 points per 100 possessions gap. It matters. And then you look at how thin the margin was defensively for the top teams. Like the Spurs had the top defense, 100.9 points allowed per 100 possessions. The Warriors are at 101.1. So they're just, there normally seems to be uh, a smaller gap there. And then the final thing I'll say to end this hopefully coherent rant is even when the Warriors take nights or plays off, like that's almost never going to show on the offensive end. Maybe there'll be turnovers, but a bad possession can still end with a made Steph three where there'll be defensive possessions. Uh, you're playing so many uh, for one that the score totals are going to be drummed up inherently. And then two, uh, if you're going to take time off, like I just feel like that's going to reflect more on the defensive side than the offensive side. Yeah, I think that's right. The the thing I would add is that um, if you are looking to kind of protect guys over the course of the season, I think green is probably one that you're going to look at most. Um, and maybe that means cutting his minutes. Maybe that means fewer minutes at center. Um, maybe that means, which like for all the offensive stuff that that does for the Warriors, it actually, I mean, defensively, it's as big a advantage as anything. Um, you can sort of roll all the other things if you're looking for little, little like uh, vulnerabilities into that and, and point to like Iguodala, Livingston decline a little bit. McCaw is probably still too thin to be like a real factor defensively, um, except against maybe point guards. And he's not a like real great athlete to where he can stick with those guys. So if he's playing more, you get a little slippage. And then the complacency angle, I totally agree. If you do see a play taken off here or there, it's not going to be offense because everybody wants their buckets. And, and it's hard for that offense to not just be revving all the time. So yeah, I think I think I agree with you on that. That'll be interesting to watch, though, because I think you could probably also make the case that maybe it won't be just because they are. We probably take their defense for granted at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to know where to, uh, you know, one of the things you look at with this team is is their chemistry should be better, right? I mean, with basically everybody back, um, plus, you know, year two of Durant, no additions that are going to play huge minutes um, that, that are going to have to be figuring things out. Like if, if Nick Young already is kind of out of the rotation to me, and if Caspi doesn't click right away, like guess what? He just won't play. They'll play somebody else that, that is, uh, you know, comfortable. Um, so does the chemistry manifest itself in like smoother offense and better anticipation on that end? Or does it, is it the defense that's tighter? Cause it, the whole five guys on a string thing, you know, you'd think that string gets a little more taut the longer you play with the same guys. So it's that'll be interesting to see uh, where that 
sort of familiarity really uh, is a benefit. And I guess the the last actual roster-related question to this team that everyone obviously wants to know, Jordan Bell, <laughs> does he get any significant minutes beyond garbage time? Or is it, you know what, and maybe this has to be a part of the question, might we see just, you know, a little bit more urgency from the Warriors at times and they're going to close out games quicker so that they can get Jordan Bell into the lineup? That's always the hope for me because, and that was true with McCall last year, even though he started a bunch with Duran out. Um, I just wanted to see more of him, and it's just so hard for a guy like that, as promising as everyone agrees he is, to get enough time to to just get comfortable. Honestly, um, it's tough. Rookies are just rookies are never good. That's like the truism. Um, but it's really hard to show what you can do if you're playing four or five minutes a night in these weird spurts or garbage time. So for for Bell. I, you know, to me, if you're, again, if you're trying to preserve green, I think what you potentially do is give Bell some of those small ball center minutes. And that cuts into McGee's minutes a little bit. Pachulia is sort of a ceremonial starter still at this point. So maybe you trim a little bit there. Maybe you buy some minutes by, you know, taking a couple more off David West total, which I think was still only like 12 minutes a game. So there's not a lot of room to carve out time other than garbage time. Um, but I think Bell is just, and this is, this, it's, I feel irrational, um, thinking this way, but he just, to me really feels like, uh, a guy that the Warriors should not have been able to get, um, shout because out Chicago. He, shout out Chicago. Thanks. Thanks for taking, I'm good luck. I really hope you make that three and a half million dollars work for you or whatever <laughs> it was. I'm sure you're going to be able to get like a nice, you know, you can you can really spruce up one of those two-way G League contracts with that. You can really sweeten the pot. Um, but he's just like, he's a center. He's small. He's super athletic. He's a really smart defender. And he plays insanely hard. Um, so I don't really see how he fails in the right situation. And like famous last words, right? Like plenty of guys have failed in it. But it just, the pieces add up for me. Um, so to the extent they can carve minutes for him, I think they have to try. Um, especially because he's the type of guy, these cheap costs, relatively cheap, but he got paid a lot for a second rounder um, and got a third year, I think, which is rare. Um, but that's the type of guy you need to get something out of sooner than later if you're going to keep a team together um, because the cost just gets so exorbitant with your stars. So I hope they play him. It's also possible that like you just can't justify playing him over McGee, who's awesome for his short stints. Um, so it's going to be tough. But I think everybody out here is like, it's macaw. This is a term that probably shouldn't actually mean anything, but it's like macaw levels of excitement, which is to say it's high <laughs> and unreasonably high for a guy that is a second rounder. But that's where he is. Um, I think he could be a player. I, I just don't know when he's going to play. So basically, he's the next Draymond Green, is what you're trying. Basically to Basically, is what I'm saying. You can you can put that on the uh, description of this episode. Yeah, I'm retitling it as we speak. <laughs> um, so. And this is actually an interesting question for this team as we put a bow on it, is what do you see their ceiling as and what do you see their their floor as? And again, you don't have to assume like any crazy injuries when you're talking about the floor. You don't have to assume that they get Paul George for salary filler when you're looking at their ceiling. Yeah, I mean, so I'll do the floor first. Um, If we rule out injuries of any significance, I think the floor is still like 64 wins. That's incredible um, I, to say and it not to sound crazy. And it like doesn't. is that is that low though? Is my question? Does that feel low? I mean, anything if they want below sixty five, just if you 
because this team has won 67, 73, then 67, and now has Kevin Durant for the first time, like, through his second training camp. Like, he's not new. And so anything yeah. below 65 almost feels, like, inadequate to say. Right. And so, so yeah, I'll I'll put it there. It's it's absurd. Um, I just don't know. I We've spent this whole this whole podcast talking about, like, reasons they might be better and trying to talk ourselves into reasons they might be worse. And so I think you have to just reflect that in the number. The the ceiling is, I mean, the short answer is sort of whatever they want it to be. Um, <laughs> because, you know, if they get after it and things click and everybody's super healthy and there's no decline from from the vets, um, you know, would, could they win 75 games? Like, I mean, we're talking ceiling, like absolute upper limits of their potential, maybe. Um, I think personally, I'm going to, I think they'll probably, I think they'll win 70 games. That's where I'm putting it at. Um, with, with the caveat that they could absolutely win more if it is a priority or if for some incredible reason, the Rockets are pushing them for that top seed and they stay interested and they need to secure home court, that type of thing. Um, but the ceiling is, is almost impossible to calculate other than to say like they can win, they can win more games than anyone has ever won if it's a priority for them. Do you think it there's an like a point where it could ever become a priority like if they all of a sudden look up and it's you know we're 35 and 1. That it just you know is there any yeah. is there any time where they'll just then decide to go for it or is it going to have to be you know if they're if they're close like in their and like they've got there organically and they already have 72 wins and and there's like three games left or something maybe. I think it's it's weird to say but they're almost going to have to back into it. Like they got so I think they're so snake bit from two years ago where winning 73 was uh, was absolutely a priority. They said they didn't care about it all along. And then they admitted after the fact to a man that they did care about it. Um, and it hurt them, among other things. So I think that there won't it will have to be organic. It will have to be. Well, hey, look at that. We we just went on like a 28 game winning streak. And, and if we, you know, why don't we just keep this going? But hey, listen, nobody's playing more than 32 minutes tonight, guys. So if you want if you want this win, you got to do it in the first three quarters, like that type of thing. They're not going to gun for it. I just don't see any scenario where uh, they they do that. Um, the hope, I guess, if you're if you want that record, is that they do get pushed by somebody in the West. Um, but being pushed to win 62 games is very different than being pushed to win 74, or 75. Um, I just don't know if there's as much better as the West got. I don't know if there's that kind of quality. There's, I wonder if, so the NBA's like new resting guidelines where it's basically taboo if guys aren't actually injured to rest them on national television and we know yeah. the Warriors are going to play a million national television games. I wonder if that's the <laughs> argument in favor of them backing into it because, yeah, there's ways around these rules, but like it's particularly or exponentially more difficult for the Warriors than other teams because they play on national television in these marquee matchups so often. Well, here's the other thing. I know, and I know this is way too long already for uh, how many games are they going to win question. But um, so getting rid of four games and five nights and just more generally expanding the schedule, having more rest in between games, um, this benefits the really good teams because, you know, you don't have these schedule losses where like somehow the Suns beat you because you, you're playing your fourth game in five nights and you're on the back end of a back to back. Um, it's going to emphasize the talent disparity. Like these bad teams are not going to steal schedule wins. And the good teams, I think, my guess is, are not going to lose as many so-called schedule losses just because you're not going to have 
this crazy stretch of games where you're on the road for eight and you finally get home and somebody comes in and beats you because you're just wiped out. I think it's going to affect that. So if you're looking at the win total, that's another reason to just sort of with all these, you know, high end teams to sort of look to the bigger totals. So 78 and four confirmed 78 and four. If not, if not just 82 and oh, why not? Yeah. Why, why, why not? Um, Oh, the question we didn't get to, and I actually thought the bulk of the podcast was going to be spent on it, but it, it went nicely, I thought. Um, is there anyone, or who do you think is the worst matchup for the Warriors in the West? I think the reflexive answer has been the Rockets, and I find myself being just super intrigued by the Thunder, if only because I like the potential of a death lineup with them when you stash Patterson at the five. Yeah, I think I agree. I So my, I think still, I still think the Cavs are the best uh opponent and like it's just irrespective of the moves they made or whatever just because they have lebron and lebron's the best player in the world and he actually did beat them one time so we and nobody else did that so let's get simple about it but i think it is probably the thunder just because they have the bodies to uh sort of get a bunch of like-sized guys out there that can shoot and and run around and switch and you know if you're going to try to beat the warriors um and you're not going to junk it up like the Cavs did when they won that title um, you got to try to run around with them. And, and I think the Thunder probably have the best roster to do that. But I don't know where you put Carmelo. Um, I don't know who he hides on. I, I, he's going to get targeted. And, you know, you can't put Robertson out there because the Warriors don't guard him. Yeah, Adams can't play because the Warriors won't guard him. Um, so it's interesting. And, and the Rockets are, are intriguing. And the Spurs, I don't think the Warriors have been afraid of the Spurs for a long time. Um, but they're always there. I guess I'd go Thunder too, um, just because of because of the the size, the like size guys they have that can all play. The party kind of changes there if Isaiah Thomas comes back healthy and continues to be. Uh, he was better than Kyrie Irving the past two years, but even if he ends up being a lateral move, like I'm not going to buy into. He's more of a liability on defense just because of his size. But then you've all of a sudden you have this lateral move on offense at point guard, and you added Jay Crowder, who is one of the most versatile defenders in the league. So that might be. It, that that's something to consider with the, the Cavaliers as well. It's just getting him in that trade, that's arguably the bigger immediate boon for them just because we know LeBron um, can be the playmaker. They already had Derrick Rose on the roster. You knew Dwayne Wade was going to end up there at some points. So there was always going to be someone to feed the ball to other people. But getting Jay Crowder, the, the conversation, it doesn't make the Cavaliers close to favorites in that discussion, but it, it makes you think like, hey, if we get round four, as we're probably going to, uh, they there might be a different layer to it, maybe a little bit more drama. Who knows? Yeah, man, that's my hot take. That was my hot take of the summer, that I would have done that deal if I'm the Cavs if all I was getting back was Crowder and the pick. I just think I'm that— with, I'm with you. That Crowder is like, he's the type of player that you want if your goal is to beat the Warriors, which, and that can be Cleveland's only goal at this point. Um, and the pick is just, I mean, it's gravy. Um, I think, you know, if you want to defend Kyrie a little bit, it's like that is the type of guy that's nice to have in a finals where he can give you like 45 or, and he can create shots for himself. And he might be somehow more dangerous than Thomas that way, although clearly you're right. Thomas was a better player last year, but, but Crowder is, yeah, Crowder is, is, I should have, I should have given him a little more shine, uh, in, in saying the Cavs are the real big threat to the Warriors in so far as there is one. Yeah. And if LeBron resigns and you try and use that first pick to coax Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon out of Milwaukee over the summer, that's, that's when the Cavs actually become an interesting challenger to Golden State. Yeah, I agree. Um, Grant, thank you so much for being extremely generous with your time today. I am super 
excited about how this podcast went because it didn't go in any way, shape, or form how we thought it was going to <laughs> compared to our precast discussion. If anyone wants to talk to Grant about his piping hot takes on the Warriors, please do follow him on Twitter at GT underscore Hughes. That's GT underscore H-U-G-H-E-S. He is a, he's a fantastic Twitter follower. I don't know how he has sub-1,000 followers. He tweets these just great, clever, witty things. Um, if he tweeted more often, I'm sure he'd have more followers, but you need to follow him. And check him out at Bleacher Report, where he's a national NBA featured columnist. Writes some great stuff there as well. If you want to talk to me, I'm at Dan Favalli. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy Bailey at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled exactly as it sounds. Please follow our parent sponsor, MBA Math, at MBA underscore math. And you can get at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox. Please, as always, subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review, even if it's a mean one. And since Andy is not here to close it out, we will not be ending with a shout-out to you-know-who. Until next time. Hello, I'm Joe Cordell of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. At Cordell & Cordell, we encourage our clients to participate, to recognize how essential their role in this process is. They've got to be willing to help us help them. And by working jointly in a sort of partnership, we're more likely to get the best possible outcome for our clients. And that's really the standard that our clients can fairly hold us to, is what is the best possible outcome for them. So clients who are facing divorce need to recognize that for them to succeed, they need a partnership, a partnership between them and their attorney. The attorneys at Cordell & Cordell work to help men maximize their role in their children's lives. Contact the domestic litigation firm of Cordell & Cordell to schedule an appointment with one of our firm's San Francisco area attorneys, a partner men can count on. 650-389-1111. Online at CordellCordell.com. That's CordellCordell.com. Offices in San Francisco, San Mateo, and San Jose. Se habla español. Legal services available in English and Spanish. Kimberly Llewellyn licensed in California. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.